If you know anything about this Assyrian Empire, the capital was Nineveh. And Nineveh was the city that we know that Jonah had went and preached to. Holy moly. I'm deaf and that sounds bad. And uh, thank you. And, uh, and Nineveh had experienced one of the greatest revivals in human history. Jonah shows up and says, turn or burn. Five word sermon pretty much. The city repents. It turns back to the Lord and God spares it. But time has passed and they went back to the same wickedness, the same cruelty, the same evil. And God says, I gave you a chance. I gave you mercy. And you trampled on that mercy. You say, well, Jake, what does that mean for us today? Many times the battles that we are going through in our life, the people that have wronged us, the people that have hurt us, you say, why does God not deliver me faster? Why does God not protect my reputation quicker? Why does God not remove my enemies faster? Because sometimes God is giving them the opportunity to repent. God is extending mercy to them. I love the mercy of God. I'm thankful for the grace of God. But when people are after me, I wish God would shorten the leash a little bit. But that's not how it is to be. I should want those people that hate the church and hate the things of God to experience the love and mercy and forgiveness of God. I want those people who don't think highly of me to experience the love and grace and mercy of God. And so what do we see from this first chapter about who God is? There's just a few things, and I hope that you'll write this down. The first thing about God that you and I need to know is that He is a holy God, if you're taking notes tonight. A holy God. Let's read verses 1 and the first part of verse 3. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries and reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not all acquit the wicked. See, when we think jealousy, when we think wrath, we think of it from a sinful perspective. We think about how we are jealous, how we are angry. But when you're talking about a perfect God, it is different. God looks at you and loves you and wants what is best for you. And He is jealous in His love for you. He wants you to love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But yet He loves you with a jealous love. One that He was willing to send His own Son to die in your place and mine on the cross. And so this idea of you and I loving our children, we would not let anyone else take our place. We would be there for them, fight there for them, correct them if necessary, but hopefully die for them if it came to that, is what it's talking about here. God is a holy God and He loves you. But He is also a holy God and says, I will fight for you. He is talking here about the people who hate the children of God, who have wronged the children of God. He says, don't you worry about this. I've seen your pain. I've seen your heartache. I've seen your struggle. And I will fight for you. You don't have to be vengeful. The Bible says, do not take vengeance into our own hand. But God says is, trust me, I know what that person needs. I know the correcting. I know the discipline. I know what is necessary to fight for you. As a church, we need to always remember that. 
There will always be people who Satan tries to use to destroy the local church. There will always be people that Satan tries to use that to destroy your marriage, destroy your reputation. And friends, it is so easy to want to fight those battles on our own. We'll all get on Facebook and I'll tell people what really happened. Don't do it. I'll sit at the coffee shop and I'll tell them old men what really happened. Don't do it. Trust that the Lord sees your pain. Trust that the Lord sees your hurt. And the Lord says, I will not let this go without fighting for you. It might not be in the time span that you want it. It might not be as quick as you want it. But God says, I know your enemies. But he stops in verse 3. Because I read verse 2 and I'm really happy. I'm like, yes, Lord. But he says, I am slow to anger. God doesn't just flip off the handle like you and I do when someone cuts us off in traffic. God doesn't fly off the handle when someone says something hurtful and our immediate reaction is to respond. No, God is merciful. Think about what the Bible says in the book of Exodus or uh, Ezekiel, and you can write these down on your own time in Ezekiel 18. It talks about that the Lord is, does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. That He wants people to experience love and forgiveness and mercy. That He is always willing to extend that grace and mercy to people who ask. Ezekiel 33 says it like this, verse 11. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. God does not rejoice over death. He is the giver of life. He is the creator of life. But yet sin leads to death. The consequences of the fall affect everything. But God says, I don't take pleasure in anyone's death. I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked or the righteous. He goes on to even says, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Repent and live. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Will you die? O house of Israel. He tells them, I know your struggle. I know your burden. I know your enemies. But don't ask for mercy if you don't want God to show mercy to other people. If you love the grace and mercy and compassion of God, you better be willing for Him to extend it to people even when they are your enemies. Even when they have wronged you. We see this passage of Scripture here that He is holy. He is going to make every wrong right. He's going to make every hurt visible. You don't have to worry about Him missing one. You don't have to worry about Him not knowing. And I will not at all acquit the wicked. He says the greatest thing you can do in the battles of your life is just stay close to Him. Friends, when you are going through the difficulties when you're going through the challenges, you are not required to have the answers. You are not required to fight the battle for yourself. You're just required to be obedient. That means if it's a struggle and you don't know the answer, all you're asked to do is to trust God and pray. You say, Jake, what about what's another person? You're just responsible to pray and watch the Lord work. That's what he says here. All you are required to do is just be godly. Romans 13 tells us to put on Christ in the way that we live, in the way that we think, in the way that we go about our life. 
Second attribute of God I want to show you from this passage of Scripture is not only is He holy, but He is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. In the second part of verse 3 it says, The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at His presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before His indignation, and who can endure the fierceness of His wrath? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by it. You see, He just told us that we are to trust Him. That He's going to fight for us. And He knows that in those moments we begin to think, well, is He able? Is He going to? And He starts by saying to Nahum, listen up here, I want you to see how powerful I am. What He's done here is He's lifted every article in Israel. He's listed the farmlands. He's lifted the lush gardens. He's lifted the mountaintops. He has named every part of Israel and says, I'm in charge of all of it. There is nothing that is not under my control. There is nothing that I cannot do. There is nothing that I cannot destroy. There is nothing that I cannot give life to. He's just saying, I'm all powerful. And so when you begin to doubt the power and, and majesty and amazingness of who God is in the storm of your life, God wants you to look and remember, I am. I am the one who gives life. I am the one who told the stars where to hang. I am the one that tells the ocean only to go so far. He said, I can do anything. And he says, don't forget, I just told you that I would fight for you. I would take care of you. I would defeat your enemies. He is putting these together because he is building a foundation for the nation of Israel because things don't get better for quite a while. In about 40 years, the Babylonian Empire raises up and destroys the Assyrian army. And so Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah is excited, but then Babylon comes and destroys Judah because of their wickedness. But in all of that, when the storms seem to keep coming, and the tragedies still keep coming, and the bad diagnosis still keep coming, God wants you to be reminded of who He is. Because friends, you and I cannot control the length of the storms in our life. We cannot control the things that people do to us. All we can do is turn our eyes to Jesus. All we can do is like the Apostle Peter walking on the water, focus on Him. I cannot control what the doctor says. I cannot control what a spouse says. I cannot control what a church member says. I cannot control what an atheist says. But what I can do is I can focus on what God has said on who He is, the promises He's made to me. And so when our marriage is having a tough time, or our kids have grown up and decided they don't want to love the Lord, or, or whatever the issue is, I, I can't control any of that. But what I can do is I can be reminded that God is faithful, that God is powerful, and that God loves me. We go on in the same passage of Scripture, and I'm going to try to be very brief tonight. Two sermons in one day, and God's people said... Amen. Thank you. You felt guilty there. You're like, oh, no. It's okay. The third thing about God that I want you to see from this passage of Scripture is God is good. God is good. Verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord is... Say it with me. Now, I know you never struggle with this. 
But sometimes I look to heaven and I go, I don't understand what's going on. I, I don't understand, God, why you do what you do. But verses like this remind me the Lord is a stronghold in a day of trouble. And He knows those who trust Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make an utter end of its place. And darkness will pursue His enemies. You see, He told us that He's holy and that He knows what we're going through. He tells us that He's all-powerful. And then He says, don't you forget that I am good. Jesus said it in the New Testament about, we know how to good gifts to our children. And how much more does our Heavenly Father the Bible talks about the fact that the sparrow neither plants nor, nor harvests, but yet God takes care of them. I think we are so guilty of when things are going difficult, when things are going, or going a challenge, that we would never say it out loud. But I think most of us deep down would question, God, are you good in this situation? God, I don't understand why this happened to me. I don't understand why this happened to our family. I don't understand why this happened to our marriage. And God wants you to be reminded that He is good. That God is working in your life. God is not blind to your struggle. That's why verse 8 is such a, uh, verse 7 is so special because He says, And He knows who trust in Him. God has not forgotten about you. God has not said, Well, I think they were one of mine. Maybe they're not one of mine. Or God doesn't get too busy with the crisis in the Middle East and said, well, that little believer sitting at 10 Mile Baptist Church on a Sunday night, I don't know their struggle. No, He does. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your pain. He knows what you're going through. And what He was telling the children of Israel was, I see you in captivity. I see you in bondage. I see you hopeless." I see you in a situation that there is no earthly fix. The Israelites could not rise up and overthrow the Assyrians. They couldn't partner up with Egypt and defeat them. They tried that. That They couldn't pay mercenaries to set them free. They had no hope. And friends, I can tell you, it feels like that sometimes. And in that moment, God says, hey, I'm good and I know you. Because really, that is probably one of the hardest things is the feeling of being alone. The struggle that comes from that when you feel like you're the only one who's failed God. The only one who's going through a health crisis. The only one that's going through marriage trouble. The only one that this happens. Over and over again, Satan convinces us that we're unlovable. That we're unworthy. That we don't belong. That's why I don't care what anyone says until God takes me out of this pulpit. I will always, always preach that if you can be at church, you ought to be at church. You ought to be there because you shouldn't be alone. Because when you're alone, Satan will begin to whisper to you, well, no one's even missed you while you were gone. No one even wants you while you're there. The preaching's not very good anyway. You won't get nothing out of it. Whatever it is, Satan will do that to you. And friends, what you need to know is that God sees you. And Satan's greatest tool is to convince us that we're not worthy. He goes on in the same passage of Scripture, and I'm going to try to race to the end here. Starting in verses 9 through 12, we serve an unstoppable God. You say, what's the difference between all-powerful? Just because He's all-powerful doesn't promise that He'd use it. But what He says here is, I am unstoppable. 
verses 9 through 12, it says, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns, and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise manier, yet this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. What he's doing is he's making a direct statement toward the king of Assyria, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He says, hey, you think you're in charge, but you're not. You think you've got all these big plans for your empire and for your subjects and for those people that you've conquered, but I want you to know something. You can do nothing when I choose to work. And friends, I think this has been probably the verse that has encouraged me the most. Because I'm not a real smart fellow. I literally came out this morning and told you about my zipper issue, all right, in the first service. If you weren't in the first service, you'll have to listen to it later. And some of you are thinking, I don't know what it was, but I don't want no part of that. Fair. But friends, some people are geniuses. And sometimes that genius is used for some of the most evil things. I'm a big studier of history, and I love to just read and study about the Second World War. It absolutely blows my mind the evil atrocities of the Nazi Empire. But some of those people to accomplish those wicked and awful things were mad geniuses. And I think just what good could have been done if they would have loved God and loved people. But yet, friends, there will be people in your life that will be geniuses at the things of Satan. The Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He can appear as an angel of light. He is a trickster. He is a conniver. He is a manipulator. And he knows how to pass that knowledge on to his people. Don't be surprised when the Bible tells us to be humble and gentle and lowly. That Satan does not operate that way. He operates in conniving. He operates in trickery. He operates in deceit. And so friends, when people will call you simple or down to earth or, or just the salt of the earth people, use that as a badge of honor that reflects our Savior. Now I'm not saying all Christians are dumb. Please don't think that. I know some men have got degrees and IQs and all of those things. And, and, um, but what I'm saying is, is friends, nothing should surprise you. And the schemes of men... Friends should not surprise you as well. You should not be surprised when people go out of their way to make plans for your demise. You shouldn't go out of, it shouldn't surprise you when people go out of their way to make problems in your home. It shouldn't surprise you when jealousy and anger and bitterness control the lives of other people. But never forget that God says, I am unstoppable. You can scheme, you can manipulate. You can try to do all of these things, but God says, I'm in charge. And friends, when you feel helpless, remember that. That He is unstoppable. There is no plan of Satan that can ever succeed. 
We know that Satan is not all-knowing like the Lord. We don't know for sure what Satan knew or did not know about the plan for the cross and the crucifixion. But you have to think that on that Friday when Jesus bowed his head and says, it is finished, you have to think that he thought, I've won. I've won. You say, well, Jake, you don't know that. I don't know that. But I do know that he is not God and he is not all-knowing. And that he is crude and he is cruel and he is deceptive. And nothing brought him greater pleasure than watching the Son of God, who he had to worship in heaven, go through what it did. But friends, don't forget, Sunday is coming. You have to believe that God's purposes and plans, while they might seem bleak, while they might seem hard, while they might seem difficult, God is not surprised. And the last and final thing, and this will be short, is that He is a God of salvation. He is a holy God. He, he, he is an unstoppable God. All the things we've mentioned, but He is a God of salvation. Look what it says in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. For now I will break off His yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved images and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who bring good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Don't miss that. He says, I am going to save you as a people, as a nation. But friends, look what it says here in verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who bring good tidings, who proclaims peace. If you remember the book of Romans, the Bible talks about that for those who preach the gospel. Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who preach the gospel. How can people hear if they are not preached to? How can they be preached to if no one goes? You see, friends, you need to remember that God is in the business of saving. And tonight, if you're here and you're lost and you're saying, Jake, I don't have any enemies. I don't have any problems. I don't, I don't have anything that I need to be saved from sin. It is an internal enemy. You were born with a sin nature. You have embraced your sin nature. And you are an enemy of God. But you don't have to be. Jesus loved you so much that He came and died upon the cross for you and was buried and rose again. If you will call upon your, His name and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Tonight I would say, though, that knowing most of this crowd for upwards of 11 and a half years, that most of us fit into that category if we're believers with situations. Enemies, struggles, some of them external, some of them internal, some of them in our homes, some of them in our businesses, some of them here at church. And what you need to be reminded of is who God is. Friends, I, I'm so thankful for the privilege to be your pastor. And thinking about all the stupid things I've done over the years, I would have never survived anywhere else. You have been the most gracious, merciful, loving congregation that a pastor could ever ask for. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Ha-ha! <laughs> I, I can't hear you, but I, I, I agree with you, whatever you said. 
But friends, he put something off on the thing behind us, didn't he? Yeah, I should have known. Right in the middle of trying to do something really kind. Thanks a lot, Mike. Oh, okay. Boy, I'm glad Marlene loves him. So, no. no, I'm kidding. Amen. No, I say all of that because, friends, I'm not the answer to your problems. Friends, your Sunday school teacher is not your answer to your problems. Even a great counselor is not the answer to your problems. An intimate, personal relationship with the God of the Scriptures is the answer for everything. It's the answer in your time of loss. It's the answer in your time of betrayal. He's the answer in your time of fear. He is enough. And only when this church can honestly get along with God and say, Lord, it's all about you. It's not about the singing. It's not about the preaching. It's not about all the flash and the stuff. God, it's about you. And you're enough. And I'm going to follow you wherever you send me. I'm going to trust you and whatever you allow my way is in those moments that God can truly work in amazing ways. I was so thankful this morning to watch those two baptisms. I thank you for the three of you that agree with you. The rest of you, get right. But you know what? There's just a joy on those kids' face. And this is going to sound difficult, but you know what? Life for them has been pretty easy. Faith is pretty simple at that point. Childlike faith. But the older you get, the more licks you take, the more scars you have, the more wounds you're carrying, the more betrayals you have, the more knife wounds in your back. Friends, in those moments, I want you to know that that baptism water, it's not enough. That church membership's not enough. All of the stuff that you've done for God is not enough. In those moments as you serve God longer and longer and longer and you go through the valleys and you go through the mountains and you go through the hurt, He is the only one that will get you to the finish line. He is the only one in His promises that will carry you through. Your spouse will fail you. Your pastor will fail you. Your deacon will fail you. But I'm telling you, He will not. He will not abandon you. He will not grow weary. He will not quit. He is faithful to the end. And when that's how we begin to approach Him in our prayers, when that's how we begin to approach Him in our worship, it will change everything because He is worth it. He is worth it in every single way. If you would stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. And Lord, we know that this chapter of judgment, this chapter of, of correction, Lord, is difficult, but yet, Lord, we know that it is so beautiful to see how you love us, to see how you care for us. And Father, tonight I know there are families with great struggles, the loss of loved ones, the hurt of unbelieving children, the pain of broken relationships, and so many others. And tonight, Lord, I hope they will look to you the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, tonight I pray that we would make much of you as you truly are the only answer for the situations that we face. And Lord, during this time of prayer, I pray that you'd help us to be humble and honest before you for your glory. And I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.